Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Rachel Harkai. Our guest today is poet Marie Howe. Marie has published two books of poetry, The Good Thief, which was chosen for the 1987 National Poetry Series, and What the Living Do. She has also co-edited In the Company of My Solitude, American Writing from the AIDS Pandemic. The late Stanley Kunitz, former United States Poet, poet Laureate, selected Howe for a Levon Younger Poets Prize from the American Academy of Poets, and poet and novelist Margaret Atwood named Howe's first collection, The Good Thief, for the National Poetry Series. Marie has, in addition, been a fellow at the Bunting Institute at Radcliffe College and a recipient of NEA and Guggenheim Fellowships. Currently, she teaches creative writing at Sarah Lawrence College and New York University, and she is visiting the University of Michigan this winter as a distinguished writer in residence. According to her mentor, the distinguished poet Stanley Kunitz, Howe's telling is luminous, intense, eloquent. Her poetry is beautiful, and it is devastating. I'm so glad that you could join us on the show today, and I know we're we're thrilled to have you in Ann Arbor this winter. Thanks, Rachel. I love being here. Good. Um, I was hoping that we could get started just by having you read a poem from your book, The Good Thief. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, you suggested Gretel from a Sudden Clearing, and in this first book, I actually wrote this poem when I was in Provincetown as a fellow at the Work Center, the place Stanley Kunitz founded many mm-hmm. years ago. And it's in the voice of Gretel when she's talking to Hansel. Gretel from a Sudden Clearing. No way back then, you remember, we decided, but forward, deep into a wood so darkly green, so deafening with birdsong, I stopped my ears. And that high chime at night, was it really the stars or some music running inside our heads like a dream? I think we must have been very tired. I think it must have been a bad, broken off piece at the start that left us so hungry we turned back to the path that was gone and lost each other looking. I called your name over and over again and still you did not come. At night I was afraid of the black dogs and often I dreamed you next to me but even then you were always turning down the thick corridor of trees. In daylight every tree became you and pretending I kissed my way to the forest until I stopped pretending and stumbled finally here. Here too there are step parents and bread rising and so many other people you may not find me at first. They speak your name when I speak it. But I remember you before you became a story. Sometimes I feel a thorn in my foot When there is no thorn, no thorn, they tell me not unkindly that I should imagine nothing here, but I believe you are still alive. I want to tell you about the size of the witch and how beautiful she is. I want to tell you the kitchen knives only look friendly. They have a life of their own and that you shouldn't be sorry, not for the bread we ate and thought we wasted, not for turning back alone and that I remember how our shadows walked always before us and how that was a clue and how there are other clues that seem like a dream but are not and that every day I am less 
and less afraid. Thank you. That was poet Marie Howe reading a poem from her first book, The Good Thief. So that book came out um, in the late 80s. It's mm-hmm. uh, a while ago now. What, what was going on in your life at, at the point that you published this book? Oh, gosh. You know, love and death. Yeah. As always, love and death, love and death, love and death. Um, I, I, I write a lot of poems, Rachel, but I throw most of them away. Mm-hmm. And so I write a book about every nine years, mm-hmm. and um, I'm just actually finishing my third book this week. That's fabulous. Handing it in, um, and this book, you know, uh, Gretel talking to Hansel. I mean someone she'd lost, who she'd been with in the forest, of course. Um, so I had lost someone, sure. But I was also, I think, sort of obsessed with this notion of the m- retroactive dread. You know, when you, when you, when you, when you, well, there's a line in another poem, like the moment just just before you forgot what it was you were about to say. Mm-hmm. Like the notion of things happening in time that change your life and how you can have intimations of these moments or later on you can look back and see how they were always coming. Um, but there's a lot of poems in this first book, I think, that are about, about that. Mm-hmm. Um, t- trying to touch that in some way. And a lot of the poems are written in personas. Um, there's a poem in Eve's voice. There's a poem in Gretel's voice. There's a poem in Mary's voice. Um, there's some ways I couldn't... The, the, the material is very unconscious, you know, mm-hmm. in this book. Yeah, I definitely felt that um, contrast um, between your two yeah, books. and what the living do... My brother John, who had been, I'm one of nine children, first of all. I'm the oldest daughter of nine children, big Irish Catholic family, tribal family. Mm-hmm. And my second to the youngest brother John was my dear, close, close, close friend. And he was my reader for all my poems. Mm-hmm. Um, he was 11 years younger than I, but just soulmate, kindred spirit. And he uh, became sick with AIDS. Uh, 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 just before The Good Thief was published and died after it was published. And John's living and dying, uh, you know, as you know, as everybody listening knows, when you undergo a profound transformation, your work changes too. And so the poems from What the Living Do became m- lucidly clear. I wanted in, them to be um, like stories you could transparent mm-hmm. uh, so that there'd be nothing mysterious about the delivery of them but that in the story itself where there might be a lot of mystery and wonderful yeah. you know I feel like that's something that um, we're constantly struggling with as poets to mm-hmm. try to achieve clarity in sort of you know an emotional mess mm. the emotional mess that comes out of grief that mm-hmm. comes out of love that comes out of devastation well, you know, you mentioned Stanley Kunitz. I want to share one quick story. That would be fabulous. It was the first time I've ever heard him referred to as the late Stanley Kunitz, and I'm glad it happened here with you because he was my dear friend, and um, he's so alive eternally to me. Um, but after my brother John died, I was walking with Stanley in Cambridge, 
and he was, you know, gosh, probably 88 or something. Amazing, you know, stay up later than any of us, 3 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> still be going strong. Um, and he asked me how I was, and I said, I feel as if something has me in its mouth, and it's chewing me. And he said, it is. And you must wait to see who you'll be when it's done with you. Stanley, of course, is a great poet of transformation and change. And so that really helped me, you know, that I didn't have to be who I was. I didn't have to write like I used to. And so the poems, yeah, in What the Living Do, which started out being writing about John, um, I wanted them to be like almost like little movies, you know, mm -hmm. where there was nobody in the way. You could just see them. Yeah, that's a... It's a difficult thing to achieve and something that as a writer myself I'm constantly grappling with how how can we capture a life in an in a narrative form in a poem mm -hmm. and it's something that I'm constantly struggling with trying to trying to not just freeze things not just freeze mm -hmm. scenes mm -hmm. but really mm -hmm. really capture um, everything around that the context of that well in this book voices began to come in and that mm -hmm. really changed things I mean this book is full of people talking other people talking John um, but then others too James different people talk and um, and that helped I mean th to let to suddenly realize I learned from a lot of other poets too I mean Mark Doty mm -hmm. um, uh, Michael Klein, Gene Valentine, uh, there's a man named Ron Schreiber who was writing poems about his partner who had died of AIDS, that a lot of dialogue was in them. And so that came pouring in. And I wanted to write poems that, that my sisters and brothers could read. You mm -hmm. know, I wasn't, didn't want to be literary in any way. I wanted it to be really for people who could pick up a book of poems and not be afraid of it at all. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's how when you're talking about devastation and grief, especially the grief that comes from death, it it should be something that's accessible because it's something that we all experience, you know, from time to time at some point in our lives. And it's something that I felt really strongly permeated your work was that uh, despite the specifics of your story mm -hmm. and your brother's story and your friend's stories, that it was conveying an em emotion that was universal something mm -hmm. that your reader could relate to was that something that you um you were trying to get at well you know how it is when you what blake said you know eternity is in love with the particulars mm -hmm. um you know it's the particulars that mm -hmm. matter and uh so just to try to tell some of these stories as best I could, especially the stories I still didn't understand, you mm -hmm. know, um, it was important. And John was such a great talker, mm -hmm. and he was such a, a spiritual teacher to me. Um, I mean, he, you know, he was a happy man, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. When he was dying, he said, this is not a tragedy. I am a happy man, you know. Well, I, um, I, I read briefly about, about how you got into writing, and... Uh, a lot of the accounts of how how you started writing poetry made it seem almost as though you had had stumbled across something mm -hmm. and um even though you know i'm i'm quite a bit younger than you i mm -hmm. i sort of felt very similar to mm -hmm. that when i found writing um sort of stumbled across something that had 
had always been on the periphery of my life, but really captured what I wanted to say, what I wanted to do, and how I wanted to feel. And I'm curious about how you exactly got into mm-hmm. writing poetry. Well, poems always mattered to me from when I was a little girl and writing. I was always looking for that language that was going to speak to the world as I experienced it. Mm-hmm. And most people, of course, as we walk around our daily lives, we don't talk about that world. Um, and I would just pour through, I'd pull books out from the library in our house, trying to find something, trying to find something, you know, always trying to find something. And uh, and I wrote poems when I was a girl, you know, scribbled in my notebook. And then when I was in college, I fell in love with poet boys, always. <laughs> and and they, you know, one wonderful man, David Carter, who's still a good friend, you know, showed me Rimbaud and showed me Baudelaire and showed me these poets. And I studied poetry in college. But... You know, it was just before everything broke open. I mean, 1968, 1969, 1970, women were just, just beginning to really beginning to write. And Mm -hmm. even when I went to graduate school, which was in 1981, um, we were taught mostly male poets and... um, and I remember a friend and I organized an evening of all the women in the program to come over and we just to get together and say, maybe we could have our own reading group, you know? Yeah. And we spent the first night, I mean, we put a little sign up saying, anybody who wants to come over and read po- poems written by women, come to Marie's apartment, 113th Street. I was at Columbia. We thought maybe three or four people would show up. 40 people showed up. I mean, wow. they crushed in my little tiny apartment. My apartment was as big as a bed. <laughs> sat on the desk, on the windowsills, on each other's laps, practically. And all everybody wanted to do that night was to make a list of women who had written poems and hadn't killed themselves, mm-hmm. hadn't gone crazy. Um, like Everybody wanted to know, is it possible to be a writer and to be sane and to be a woman? Mm-hmm. We couldn't think of a single um, person. Or, well, there were wonderful lesbian poets. Mm-hmm. You know, Adrienne, who mm-hmm. had, had her children and then, you know, had this huge change of life, Adrienne Rich. Or, but that was okay, too. But mm-hmm. just, can you live with a partner of any gender and have a reasonable life? Yeah. And that was our questions. But right at that time, the doors were bursting open. And now, of course, it's years later, and... Everyone's come in from the margins, you know. Mm-hmm. But it never occurred to me until I was almost 30 years old that I could be a poet. I mean, I thought I worked for newspapers. I wrote for articles for magazines. Even though I knew it wasn't exactly right, I would be reading Rilke, you know. Mm-hmm. But I didn't think, I didn't know how one went about it, mm-hmm. you know. And so when I was up at, I went up uh, to Dartmouth College one summer on a fellowship for high school teachers, which is what I was doing. And we could take classes, and there was a writing workshop, which I'd never done. And I sat in for the first day, and we all went around the room and said why we were there. And I said, well, I'm just sitting in. I'm not really going to stay. And the woman, Karen Pals, was a teacher. She said, well, I'm here because I'm writing my spiritual autobiography. And I just yelled, who are you to do such a thing? (laughs) And she said, that's lyric poetry. And I said, I want to do that. She said, then stay. And I began to read my contemporaries, mm-hmm. you know, and that changed everything. Wow. Well, we're going to take a short break. Uh, you're listening to Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We'll be right back. 
You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Rachel Harkai. I'm talking with poet Marie Howe about uh, her two books, The Good Thief and What the Living Do. Uh, before the break, we were talking about how you got into poetry, um, talking a little bit about loss and particularly your loss of your brother, uh, John, which is the central focus of your second book, What the Living Do. Um, mm-hmm. Would you like to read another poem from that book? Sure. Um, the, you know, it's, it, when you talk about loss, of course, we have to talk about um, the presence of the person who is there, too, because that's John's presence um, is what I'd hope to try to infuse this book with. And he was quite a presence in mm-hmm. real life and uh, in his lived life. Um, and he went through so much transformation in the course of his illness, mm-hmm. um, spiritually, that, um, uh, anyways, I'll, I'll, I'll read this poem, how some of it happened. It's a story. Um, everybody has to think about what their phobias are. Do you have a phobia, Rachel? Um, I'm kind of a hypochondriac when it comes to, um, you know, perceived illnesses uh-huh. and things like that. Actually, um. It was really striking when I read that poem because as a child, I had a horrible fear of things in my eyeballs. Jumping into your eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Like sharp objects, everything. I I only started wearing contact lenses, you know, when I turned 20 um, because I could never put my finger toward my eye. But that's one of the reasons why that poem stood out to me so much. Well, then I want to read it. I have a lot of phobias myself. (laughs) But but here's Johnny had one and, and, you know, how some of it happened. My brother was afraid even as a boy, of going blind, so deeply that he would turn the dinner knives away from looking at him, he said, as they lay on the kitchen table. He would throw a sweatshirt over those knobs that locked the car door from the inside, and once he dismantled a chandelier in the middle of the night when everyone was sleeping, we found the pile of sharp and shining crystals in the upstairs hall. So you understand, it was terrible when they clamped his one eye open and put the needle in through his cheek and up and into his eye from underneath and left it there for a full minute before they drew it slowly out once a week for many weeks. He learned to lean into it, to settle down, he said, and still the eye went dead ulcerated, breaking up green in his head as the other eye, still blue and wide open, looked and looked at the clock. My brother promised me he wouldn't die after our father died. He shook my hand on a train going home one Christmas and gave me five years, as clearly as he promised he'd be home for breakfast when I watched him walk into that New York City autumn night by nine, I promise. And he did come back. And five years later, he promised five years more. So much for the brave pride of premonition, the worry that won't let it happen. You know, he said, I always knew I would die young. And then I got sober and I thought, okay, I'm not. I'm going to see 30 and live to be an old man. And now it turns out that I am going to die. Isn't that funny? One day it happens. 
what you have feared all your life, the unendurably specific, the exact thing, no matter what you say or do. This is what my brother said. Here, sit closer to the bed so I can see you. Thank you. That was poet Marie Howe reading a poem titled How Some of It Happened from her second book, What the Living Do. Um, that poem in particular uh, contrasts the first poem you read in that it moves so far out of metaphor. Mm -hmm. and, uh, you're talking about you were talking about capturing, capturing someone's presence, and after the loss of someone, how you, how you capture, how you capture their presence. I read, in one of the poems, part I, I can't remember exactly mm -hmm. what the line was, but I believe one of the opening lines was something like, "The door that I had to walk through was the oh, space yeah. where my I brother love had that been." Poem. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful because one. Because Johnny used to say to me all the time. You know, he wasn't a practicing Buddhist, but he really had that. Um, he was he was living with a Buddhist man, mm -hmm. Joe. But um, you know, he, he would say to me, "I would be hysterical over some man I loved," and he would say, "This is what you've been waiting for, this right now." I'm like, "What? What? What? What?" You know, or he was just always trying to bring me to the present moment, but. Um, so here's a little poem called The Gate. I had no idea that the gate I would step through to finally enter this world would be the space my brother's body made. He was a little taller than me, a young man, but grown, himself by then, done at 28, having folded every sheet, rinsed every glass he would ever rinse under the cold and running water. This is what you have been waiting for, he used to say to me. And I would say, what? And he would say this, holding up my cheese and mustard sandwich. And I would say, what? And he would say this, sort of looking around. That's a really, that's a beautiful poem. Um, it's Kajani. It's like, he's so great. I mean, all he wanted to, all he wanted to do was to try and, and and remember these things, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it's been really hard to write the next book without him, I'll tell you, because, <laughs> um, uh, you know, his company um, was with me so much, you know. Mm -hmm. It's so it's so difficult um, when you're thinking about loss, not only uh, the physical presence of someone being gone, but also all those peripheral ways that they were there mm -hmm. to inform you and influence you yes. and, you know, emotionally age you, you know, not even just in the craft of writing or reading your writing, but just, just the idea of them being there, not so much as the physical presence of, of them being there. Is Stanley and John, I tell you, the two of them, and they were, you know, almost, well, 80 years apart, 90 years apart in age, but John is the, I recall, I'd finish a poem, I'd call John up and say, listen to this, I'd read it, and he'd go, nope. <laughs> <laughs> didn't work out that time. I'm like, wait a minute, what about that bird thing? And he goes, the bird thing's okay. Yeah. Doesn't work, Mayor. Sorry. 
But sometimes that's what you need to hear. Of course, you know? but who doesn't? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nobody who dares to do that. I mean, you, you pay, you like, that's why you go to graduate school. And even then your teachers don't really tell you. Yeah. You want to know, you want someone who thinks you're just wonderful and who will never accept anything, <laughs> you know, less than what you can do. And that's what he was able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very strict. But when I can make him cry, I knew I, I knew it was a good poem. Yeah. That was a lot of my job. <laughs> so much of your book um, deals with beauty in a very imagistic sense and also deals uh, a lot with a lot with pain. Um, I read a, a quote that you had made in another interview where you said, sometimes I open a book that's so beautiful, mm-hmm. I have to shut it because it hurts me. Mm-hmm. I can't stand it. It's like, oh no, oh no, <laughs> oh no, this is going to drive me into my own heart. And I'm curious about uh, what you think the connection between beauty and and pain, you know, mm-hmm. emotional pain, physical pain. Well, what is that? I mean, I think I'm not the only one who has this phenomena. Why, why is joy so hard to bear? I'm reading Gilead right now by Marilyn Robinson. Have you read it? I have not. Well, it, you know, she wrote Housekeeping, mm-hmm. one of the greatest novels ever written yeah. in the world. Yeah. Have you read it? Yeah, I've read that one. Housekeeping, I opened up and I thought, oh, I shut it. I just <laughs> couldn't bear it. It took me a year, two, two years to open it up. Mm-hmm. And partly it's because I knew I would be changed. Someone just said to me a great quote by Auden yesterday. We would rather be ruined than change. We, we would rather die in dread than climb the cross of the moment. We would rather be ruined than change. And, um, I, and that's why addiction is so comforting to some people. That's why going like TV, like, you know, two hours of clicking through cable, numb, 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 right? Mm-hmm. And... But if you read a book that's written by someone who's alive, you have to be alive to read it. And it hurts to be alive. And it's wonderful to be alive. But yikes, like the blood flows to your fingertips and your toes. You know, you're really there. Gilead's like that. I mean, I picked it up this week. And I'm like, oh, no, no. it's one of I, And I put it away. And I tried it again the next night. And, I, uh, and then two nights ago, sure enough, you know, it's, I just, just. Breathe, breathe, and now it has me. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's a kind of relinquishment and surrender to to being woken up. You know, and feeling feelings hard, mm-hmm. and that's what you know. Kafka, right? Art cracks the frozen lake within us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you were talking um, just now about how difficult. It is to bear joy. Do you think uh, in poetry sometimes it's it is easier to bear pain or to deal with pain, devastation? No, I think all of it's. I think no. I think that well, what what Tolstoy say? You know, all in, all happy families are alike. Mm-hmm. Every family's unhappy in its own way. Um, you know, I want much more, much more poems about joy. Um, I have a daughter in my life now. Uh, she's six and I went to China and adopted her and she's you know I mean all you need is a six year old (laughs) you have have gold pouring into your life it's just gold every single day Um, joy and um, she's uh, she's teaching me how to live with it you know because she's just in joy that's wonderful all the time do you feel like that's uh, a direction that you're moving you're moving toward in your writing? 
Well, she's in this new book a lot. It's called The Kingdom of Ordinary Time, and um, she does show up in in the in the poems, kind of in the same way John did. Although this isn't, this book is also about. Well, do you know what ordinary time is? In the liturgical calendar, um, it's the periods that are not high high uh, holy periods, mm-hmm. like not Advent, not Lent. It's the periods in between um, where I love that idea of ordinary time. Mm-hmm. It's like where things are not evidently miraculous, you know. Yeah. And it feels like right now, in particular, um, so many religious wars are going on, holy wars, really. Um, people are blowing each other up because of, of their belief and in their, uh, their way of life whether it be the American capitalistic religion mm-hmm. <laughs> or the, you know, and, uh, and yet so many of us don't know what we believe. That ordinary time took on this other meaning for me. Um, but, so there's a lot of questions about a lot of things in this book, but, but, he, but, but there's joy too. And Inan, Inan, who's my daughter, it's her name, she shows up. That's Uh-oh. great. Yeah, you really, you you do a lot capturing the complexity of human emotion in your work, um, despite all the grief and devastation that's present in, especially in your second book, there are tiny, you know, just tiny fragments of of joy that you can sense in, in you and mm-hmm. in you seeing your brother and seeing your brother's joy. Um, well, there's that, like, even, well, you know how it is, you all stand around and laugh at the funeral. I mean, yeah. that's the truth. Yeah. You know, somebody laughs at the funeral. It's so funny. If somebody <laughs> says something funny, or like, here's one of the little moments I love in the poem called The Grave. Because it's, life is everything at once, all the time, right? Mm-hmm. During that first winter, I drove there one afternoon after Tom and Andy and Bath and Dor and Bahia had been there. Because when I stepped out of the car, their footprints marked the snowy lawn, the men's big boots, the women's smaller ones, and Bahia's little boot prints, as big as my hand, looping and falling down into a snow angel next to the grave, then another messy angel on it. And a grave or two away, another one, and the little blotch where she got up and brushed herself off. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, some little kid in boots, you know, falling down, making snow angels. What does she know about a grave? You yeah. know, um, it's, it's a gorgeous thing. Yeah, it is. Well, we're going to take one more short break. Uh, you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor, and we'll be right back.
You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Rachel Harkeye, and I'm talking with poet Marie Howe. Um, before, the, before the break, we were talking about, you know, the complexity of emotion that's present in everyday life. You know, mm-hmm. you said life is everything all, mm-hmm. of, all of the time. And um, I feel like we as writers are constantly constantly struggling with the question of whether to linger within our own emotion, our everyday emotion, you know, the ups and the downs. Um, and I feel like that's oftentimes sort of a, a starting point for many young writers. Uh, we have something that really upsets us or really excites us mm-hmm. and we want to write about it. But, you know, lately I've been feeling, I've been really trying to move outside of that, trying mm-hmm. to, um, find things that are so external from my own life that I can't possibly place any of this emotion into that. How, how do you feel about um, creating poetry that exists outside of experience and emotion? Is that something that you ever try to do or do you think that's something that's possible to do? Well, I, I, what I hear you saying is, so tell me if I'm right, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that... Um, American, much of American poetry has been quite insular, where it's really um, been primarily concerned with the individual's inner life. Mm -hmm. Um, You read the poems, let's say, of people in Nicaragua, or in Iraq, or in uh, Poland, uh, Zimborska, let's say, and they're very different, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, yes, yes, they're personal, but they also have a sense of the world mm-hmm. in them. And um, I feel like many uh, poets in America now are we're aware that we are writing within a big empire, mm-hmm. and we're insular. Like the empire is like packed with stuff, mm-hmm. and we're so far physically from other people, mm-hmm. and we do so much to affect the world, but we don't see it most of us or feel it and I feel that many more people especially since the invasion of Iraq and the occupation and 9-11 are beginning to feel um, like trying to have more world trying to touch more world in their poems there will always be a need for the individual soul to speak and cry out I mean mm-hmm. you read Sappho's poems you know and she's she can't she just looks at the ankle strap of a girl's sandal, you know. Yeah. And it's it's amazing, you know. Or Milos, you know, he writes a poem about well, you know, you know, it's hard to believe, but one once we sat here and our cufflinks glittered in the sun, you know, mm-hmm. and now we'll we're, we'll be gone, you know. Everybody on earth has these same um, impulses and feelings, but I do understand the need to try and take in more as well mm-hmm. you know yeah I I think if we send our poems to Baghdad for example if I ask my workshop you know right here to, to send next week's poems to Yanar a poet I know in Baghdad I bet they would write a different kind of poem if they were sending it out to the world I'm sure I'm sure um, the poetry that I, I tend to gravitate towards when I'm reading is, you know, I, I enjoyed both of your books so much. And, um, the poetry that I, I tend to like is very heavily emotional and mm-hmm. very devastating. And I feel like I'm at a point in my life where that is 
very much what I want to be writing about, but I've, I've been thinking about it a lot, especially, um, you know, after I discovered that you sort of stumbled on to poetry writing mm -hmm. at a later age than some poets. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm curious about whether you think that the ability to write about these certain experiences and emotions is something that can only come with time to be effective or appropriate. I, I mean, you can do, all you can do is what you can do when you do it. And, and then by doing it, you become a different. Mm -hmm. And then you're someone different. Like someone like Louise Gluck, every book has been different. Mm -hmm. You know, other people write pretty much in the same style their whole lives. And, you know, I think that if we, if art is doing, if we're really doing our work, we're constantly being transformed. Mm -hmm. And there are periods, like for everything, there is a season and for every soul. I mean, there are young poets who wrote, uh, you know, I mean, Keats wrote those odes at, what, 24? Um, and, you know, Stanley, I think, wrote the most moving poems of his life after he was 80. Um, mm. Some people, you know, everyone is different. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, I think that uh, the main thing is to follow, to follow your impulses and go as far as you can go with them. Think of Michael Jackson, you know, yeah. in Thriller. I mean, just <laughs> do it. Yeah. You know, just go. I mean, don't hold back. Spend it all. Yeah. You know, just do it and um, not. Don't try to fit in. Mm-hmm. With something, because then uh, there's so much sort of generic writing right now that comes out of even the most wonderful writing programs, and I think the hardest thing in the world is to be one person and to write what what your soul wants to discover and endure that solitude. You know, yeah. it's hard. Ginsburg said, unless it embarrasses you, it's probably no good. Yeah. You know? I think that's probably true. Unless you're really in danger of really humiliating yourself in public. Yeah. You know? Well, I was hoping that you would read us one more poem. Perhaps you could read us the, maybe the title poem. You know, there really isn't a title. There's a little prologue, but I think I'd rather read you this other poem called After the Movies. And this is from your from your From the work. Kingdom of Ordinary Time. Okay. Where is the Kingdom of Heaven? Um, you know, I was because I was thinking about notions of violence and nonviolence in the particular human, one human soul. You know, mm -hmm. if we can reconcile these things individually, then maybe, you know. After the movie, the movie was the talented Mr. Ripley. Oh uh, yeah, it's a fabulous movie. It upset me. It is. It is. It's an upsetting movie. It is. Mm -hmm. My friend Michael and I are walking home, arguing about the movie. He says that he believes a person can love someone and still be able to murder that person. I say, no, that's not love, that's attachment. Michael says, no, that's love. You can love someone, then come to a day when you're forced to think it's him or me, think me, and kill him. I say, then it's not love anymore. Michael says, it was love up to then though. I say maybe we, maybe we mean different things by the same word. Michael says humans are complicated. Love can exist even in the murderous heart. I say that what he might mean by love is desire. Love is not a feeling, I say. And Michael says, then what is it? 
We're walking along West 16th Street, a clear, unclouded night, and I hear my voice repeating what I used to say to my husband. Love is action, I used to say to him. Simone Weil says that when you really love, you are able to look at someone you want to eat and not eat them. Janis Joplin says, take another little piece of my heart now. Meister Eckhart says that as long as we love any image, we are doomed to live in purgatory. Michael and I stand on the corner of 6th Avenue saying goodnight. I can't drink enough of the tangerine spritzer I've just bought. Again and again I bring the cold can to my mouth and suck the stuff from the hole the flip top made. What are you doing tomorrow? Michael says. But what I think he's saying is, you are too strict. You are a nun. Then I think, do I love Michael enough to allow him to think these things of me, even if he's not thinking them? Above Manhattan, the moon wanes, and the sky turns clearer and colder. Although the days after the solstice have started to lengthen, we both know the winter has only begun. Thank you. That was poet Marie Howe reading some of her newest work from her forthcoming book of poetry. I enjoyed that poem very much. Um, I think that really touches on a lot of the themes in that movie, particularly, <laughs> you know, the difference between love and lust and mm-hmm. ob- obsession. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that uh, my last question for you is how... This is something I'm really curious about, how you deal with the poetics of grief in your writing. What does that mean? How you deal with... I've been thinking a lot about how pain is an emotion that is so difficult to describe to other people. When someone asks you where it hurts, you know, how does it hurt? What do you say? Yeah, but but but, but, but l- losing someone, and we're losing more and more every day. I mean, the more old, I mean, really, I have as many friends who are dead now as who are living. Mm-hmm. Um, pain is well. Two things come to my mind. John used to say to me, "Pain is clean. Pain is clean. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is a choice." Mm-hmm. When you accept the pain, it's clean like water. If you choose to suffer with it, it really hurts. Mm-hmm. Grief, let's say, if somebody leaves you or they, they die, or we, we're knowing that we're going to die, knowing that everybody we know will die, mm-hmm. is, that's grief. But inside it, it's everybody's presence as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only remedy for loss is memory. You know, and and the living presence of someone, we can do that. And the remarkable thing about language, there was a little poem at the end of what the living do, which I really loved. Do we have time for it? Um, I think we're getting close. We're getting close. It's yeah. about it's about how a word can be a sign and a symbol, that mm-hmm. it can actually represent something when it's not even there, mm-hmm. and we get to do that. Well, thank you so much. Um, That was Poet Marie Howe. Uh, You're listening to The Living Writers Show. Thank you so much for joining us today. And um, please keep your eyes out for Marie's newest book of work. Uh, My name is Rachel Harkai. Our show archives are available as podcasts on iTunes. Just go to the iTunes store online and search for Living Writers. Please stay tuned to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. (laughs) 